Hey everyone and welcome back to your Linux and open source weekly news podcast. I'm your host Nick and this is a show where we talk about everything that happened in the Linux and open source world uh, in the past week. So this week we have some big news for iOS users at least in the EU but it will probably be followed in other countries with Apple opening up iOS to alternative app stores, real third-party browsers, side-loading, and a few more things. We have the Edge ISO for Mint that finally solves one of Mint's biggest issues, which is you might not have been able to install it on recent hardware. There's some new Wayland protocols and some new portals, including one that seems to create a lot of drama because Linux is so fragmented and no one can agree on anything. And we also have some interesting changes to the NVIDIA beta drivers and some big Linux gaming news, uh, some disappointing ones from Aya Neo, some great performance boosts and some interesting projects to unify how games use Proton and why. So as always, if you want to learn more about any of these topics, all the links I use to create this show are in the show notes. If you want to support the show, all the links to do that are also in the show notes. And if you become a Patreon supporter or a YouTube member, you will get a daily version of this show from Monday to Friday, 5 to 10 minutes with a daily recap in audio format. So if you want to get that instead of having to wait for a week for each episode, then head over to the description of this episode and become a Patreon supporter or a YouTube member right now. So now let's get started. So, first, Apple will now open up iOS in a pretty big way, at least for EU citizens. But the way they're doing it seems absolutely the worst way possible for developers and customers. Because first, developers will now be able to provide alternative app stores on iOS. That's pretty cool. These app stores will still be vetted by Apple and they will require an Apple developer account. Users, once they have one installed, will be able to set these as the default app store on their iOS devices, which I think is good. And the applications that are provided inside of these alternative app stores will also be able to avoid Apple's commission, apart from the annual subscription to be an Apple developer, because apps will still have to be notarized by Apple to be installable. So you do need the developer account and you do need to submit your apps to Apple for them to check on them. If developers decide to implement their own payment method for in-app purchases, Apple will not take their usual commission on that. But if you do want to use Apple's payment system in your app, you will obviously have to pay the usual 30% fee. Now, this all looks pretty normal until you realize that apps that are in Apple's App Store, so normally distributed apps, that decide to use an alternative payment system will have to pay a 17% fee It's lower than the 30%, but since you're not using any of Apple's infrastructure, why do you have to pay anything at all? It's pretty crazy. You're already paying your annual subscription to be an Apple developer, so you're already covering the cost of hosting your app for most developers. So having to pay if you don't use Apple's payment processing system is completely insane, and I hope the EU says that it's just not okay, because it's obviously not. Now, on top of that... Apple will add an additional fee for popular applications. Once you pass 1 million annual installs in the EU, Apple will charge 50 cents per install, which 
is just not justified at all. Why would you charge extra for someone that is popular on your store? You're already taking their money from all the fees and the annual developer fees. Why would you have to charge them for being successful? It's really, really weird and absolutely unjustified. Now, there's also a sizable limitation to sideloading and to alternative app stores. If you provide your app in Apple's App Store and in an alternative app store, your app versions have to be the exact same. You cannot have something that has more features in the alternative app store and a less powerful one that passes Apple's guideline in the official app store. So basically, either you just don't use the Apple app store at all and you give up on all the marketing opportunities to have a more powerful app, or you want to provide your app somewhere else to pay less commission, but in this case, you're still limited by all of Apple's guidelines, which is obviously not in the spirit of the European law that was just implemented. Next, Apple will let users use third-party browsers on iPhones and iPads. Again, only in the EU. And I mean real third-party browsers, because right now, if you use Chrome or Firefox on your iPhone, it's just Safari with a disguise. You don't have the right to implement another browser engine, so they're all using Safaris, and in most cases, they don't have access to all the features that Safari has access to. So now you will be able to have real Firefox or real Google Chrome, which is a good thing for user choice, but it's also a really bad thing for the open web because it means that Chrome's rendering engine will once again just sweep the whole platform and we will have less diversity and a firmly Google-controlled web. And also, since it's only for the EU, it means that companies will have to maintain two versions of their browser, one that has their own rendering engine for the EU and one that uses uh, Apple's Safari's rendering engine for the rest of the world, which is an extra burden and extra work. For some companies, it might be okay, but some for some volunteer-driven efforts, it basically makes it impossible to do. And these are limitations that Apple doesn't have to follow themselves. So it doesn't quite seem fair either to not just open that up to the whole world. Obviously, app developers are not happy about all of this. Spotify called these changes a farce. Epic said it's a horror show, and Mozilla basically said what I just said. Having to maintain two versions of the browser is a big burden that Apple doesn't have to suffer, so yeah, it's just not fair in terms of competition on their own platform. And Proton from Proton Mail, uh, the Proton CEO also said that these changes have so many strings attached that it's basically impossible for developers to benefit from them because if you do, you're tying another hand behind your back. So at first, I felt these were good changes. I actually presented them in a favorable light in the uh, daily Linux and open source news show that I give to my patrons and YouTube members. But thinking about it a bit more between yesterday and today, it feels like everything is designed specifically to discourage developers from not using the App Store. You will still pay insane fees if your app is successful, even if you're not using Apple's infrastructure. You will still be constrained by Apple's validation processes and guidelines, and you will have to maintain different versions of your apps if you have a web browser between the EU and the rest of the world. So a lot of developers will probably elect to just not use these new features and possibilities. So all in all, it's typical Apple bogus. They're skirting around the spirit of the law to retain their grasp on the platform. And the EU already said that they would review these changes and that they will enforce sanctions if they find them insufficient, which I think is really good because 
yeah, it's once again an EU law that has been designed by people who have no technical knowledge, meaning that their intentions are good, but their writing is insufficient, and so companies that have the tech knowledge can just run around this law in circles by implementing it in the worst way possible so it doesn't really affect them at all, apart from a bit of development time. So hopefully these changes get pretty much cancelled by the EU and they have to go back to the drawing board and hopefully they'll also have to pay a few fines to prevent them from trying to be clever the next time. Now next, this week we saw the release of Mint's Edge ISO, the Edge ISO for Linux Mint. If you know Linux Mint, uh, it's based on Ubuntu 22.04 LTS at the moment, meaning that it ships with a very old kernel, version 5.15. And if you can get it installed, you can upgrade the kernel to a newer one, but on some computers, 5.15 will just not support the hardware you have, and so you will not even be able to run the installer for Linux Mint. And to prevent that from happening, Mint has now shipped an Edge ISO, which contains a much newer kernel, version 6.5, meaning that you can now get Mint installed on your hardware and actually get much better performance, because from 5.15 to 6.5, there have been so many improvements to so many drivers and systems of Linux that it would be a shame to stay stuck on a very old kernel for a desktop. For a server, it probably makes sense, but for a desktop, sticking to old kernels never really seemed right to me. You don't have to use the absolute latest, but you do have to have a recent one to have the benefits from updating your system. So now the Edge ISO is available, you can download it from Mint's website, and I think it is a very, very good initiative for all potential Mint users. And now it's time to tell you about this episode's sponsor, it's Thunderbird. They have been sponsoring the podcast for a few months now, and you probably already all know what Thunderbird is, you might have used it in the past, you might use it now, if you have never heard about it, it's your all-in-one communication solution. It's mostly an email client, but it also obviously supports calendars, contacts, and also RSS feeds and a bunch of other features. It's super complete, it has a brand new interface that looks amazing and is very customizable. If you want to reproduce the older interface, you can. If you want to have something more modern, you can. It has a nice guided way of adding your account, it supports tags, it has extensions to support more protocols and add more features. It is absolutely amazing. And the Thunderbird team has done a great job improving the client, and they're also expanding to other platforms. We will soon see a Thunderbird for Android client, they have started work on an iOS client, they will have sync between computers and between all platforms for all your Thunderbird-specific settings, extensions, and tags. It's just a fantastic open-source project that I can only recommend. I've been using it non-stop since the last update, version 115 Supernova, which brought the new interface, and it has replaced every single email client I used on my Linux desktops. It's also available for Windows and macOS, of course, and so I left a link to download the Flatpak version in the show notes. Obviously, their website will have other versions, and your distro probably also ships the new update in its repos. I can only recommend it if you haven't given Thunderbird a shot in a while. Try it again, it's really, really nice. So thanks Thunderbird for sponsoring this episode of the podcast, and go give it a shot if you haven't already. 
Now, last week we got a new version of some Wayland protocols and some new protocols being proposed and some new portals for Flatpak apps as well. Some of them are really good changes and some of them seem very controversial and are a big reflection of how fragmented Linux is. So first, the new version of uh, the Wayland protocols include support for better remote desktops. It's already supported through WayVNC in WL Roots and Sway, and it will mean that remote desktops are way better handled on Wayland. There's also the DMA buff protocol, which is now considered stable, and it improves how compositors and apps communicate together and draw things on screen. This protocol was already available as experimental, but now it is stable, and so we should see some improvements in latency, uh, performance, and stability of various Wayland compositors and Wayland-enabled apps. And finally, it looks like Enlightenment, uh, that make the Enlightenment desktop and the Enlightenment Foundation libraries, have been dropped from the Wayland Protocol member group because they weren't really engaging with the project or contributing much, so they decided to drop them. They are absolutely welcome to come back if they want to, but for now, they're just no longer part of the group. There's also a new portal being implemented to let applications grab the high contrast preference that you can set on your desktop, whether it's GNOME, KDE, or something else. If you have a visual impairment, for example, you might want to have the high contrast theme. But some applications did not follow that because there was no unified way to communicate that to all applications. So now with this new portal, applications will be able to read that setting from your desktop and apply it, especially for containerized apps like Flatpaks or Snaps. This has been added to the XDG standards and most major desktops have acknowledged that new portal and are working to support it as well. So that's a big win for accessibility. And the last protocol for Wayland that we have to talk about seems to generate a lot of heated debate, and that's probably because Linux is so fragmented that we just cannot do design by committee, which is what Wayland protocols currently are. This protocol is a simple one. It's to allow apps to set their own app icons for specific windows. That's something we already talked about, and it seemed completely uncontroversial, but apparently it is. Uh, personally, I don't think it's that important, but it's a nice to have. And so the protocol seems to be relatively well designed. Uh, it just lets the desktop file set an icon for the application itself. And then the application, when creating a window, can decide to use an icon from your icon theme to have a specific icon for this specific window. That's something that seems important for multi-window apps, scientific apps, or apps that don't ship a .desktop file. But apparently a lot of people are not happy with this, because we're talking about Wayland and Linux, and some people just don't want desktop files to be involved at all, the .desktop files that, that set all the data for an app. Some people don't want that to be involved at all, notably people working on app images. And some people also think that Wayland should not handle icons at all, uh, because they think that icons are already handled by the XDG icon theme standard, which is meant for apps, not for Windows, so it doesn't really fit. And there's a lot of debate over this for no real reason. Just remember, this is pages and pages and pages of comments and discussions for setting an icon on a window of an application. It should not be difficult or controversial. The protocol that is proposed seems to absolutely fit that need. But people want to 
cram a lot of other features into that which are not related to that at all and should be handled in a different set of features. It's really weird. And it all comes down to fragmentation. Wayland and Wayland protocols are defined and decided by a big fat committee of a bunch of people from various desktop environments, from various window managers, from various toolkits. And obviously, since we are so fragmented, and also packaging formats as well, uh, we are so fragmented that it's basically impossible to find a way to do something that fits every use case and every need. If we didn't have 20 different ways of packaging and distributing an app, if we didn't have 20 different desktops and window managers, it would be way easier to reach a consensus. But right now, Designed by committee just doesn't work because there are so many people that have so many different expectations that it just cannot be done. So it is good to see that some protocols work well and are implemented for remote desktops, for example. It's good to see more portals for supporting accessibility. But seriously, why do we need pages of discussion to set an icon for a window? It should not generate that much discussion. And it's really annoying to see that we're still mired in the same exact problems and losing months instead of just adding the thing, letting people who want it implement it and letting people who don't want it not implement it because they don't like it. it it's just, just don't do it if you don't want it, guys. It can be implemented by other people. It's okay. Now this week we also saw some progress on Plasma 6 with a few more features getting in, weirdly because we're just one month from the official release date, but there's still some more stuff being crammed into Plasma 6. The main improvement seems to be that config files uh, used for KDE and the Plasma desktop will now be accessed and read much faster by 13 to 16%. So this should speed up loading various applications, opening specific settings, but also maybe generally the Plasma desktop in general. They also added a new add panel button in the edit mode of the Plasma desktop. So when you right click on, on one panel or on the desktop and you choose to edit how your desktop layout works, you now get an add panel in the little transparent uh, top bar that lets you add stuff. They also removed some options from the right-click context menu of the desktop, notably to add widgets or to add a panel to simplify this menu. Obviously, it's KDE, so if you want to add those options back, you can, but by default, they won't be here to make things a little bit more simple and to not have duplicated features between the edit mode and the right-click menu. I think it's better. There was also some work in KWIN, to be able to restore the settings of multi-monitor setups, especially when your monitors don't have an EDID file that sets a few parameters. This should work much better now. There was also some good work done to make fractional scaling better with less blurry fonts, less pixelated and less broken icons. So fractional scaling should be about perfect on Plasma 6. And there's also work starting on the future release of KDE Gear, uh, the compilation of KDE apps. We will see a release at the same time as Plasma 6, but they already started work on the release that is planned for May. Uh, and the first feature will be to better save the state of Dolphin, the file manager, in case your system crashes or restarts, you will have uh, your panels, your tabs and stuff like that be kept uh, even if the app crashes, which I think is pretty good. And Plasma 6 can now also be tested in KDE Neon testing. They will have a Git version 
of, uh, of Plasma 6 in there, so every day you should get some modifications and updates. If you want to live on the edge a month before release and give it a big fat full try and see how things evolve, then you can by running KDE on either in a VM or on a spare computer. Now, I will admit I am a bit surprised to see more features landing in Plasma 6 were just a month before release. Feature freeze is supposedly in effect, but yeah, it's great to see Plasma 6 being a packed release with so many new features and improvements, but I also hope they're leaving themselves enough time to fix the issues. I don't want to have a Plasma 6 release crammed with new stuff, but that is very buggy. That's been the bane of KDE for most of its existence. The first release of a new major version is always half-broken. I don't want to see that in Plasma 6, so I hope that adding those new features will not create problems that they don't have time to fix. Now we have some interesting news in the Android space. Uh, Huawei is a major constructor of Android phones, uh, at least for China. They have issues in other countries which seem to want to ban all their devices, uh, but they used Android for the longer time, the longest time. And they switched to their own OS called Harmony OS, which was apparently not Android or Linux based as far as I could tell, but they did retain compatibility with Android apps. Well, it looks like this is done. Uh, the next release of their Harmony OS will no longer support these Android apps, which means that Huawei will basically operate their entire own app ecosystem. Uh, Harmony OS was already its own thing, but you could sideload normal Android apps. You had the Harmony OS App Store, or the Huawei Store, I'm not sure how they called it, uh, to have their own specific set of apps, which were definitely geared towards the Chinese population and Chinese services. But you could sideload Android apps, meaning that these devices, if you could procure them, could still work for a Western user. Uh, now it will no longer be the case. And it does mean that one of the biggest Chinese smartphone manufacturers, or maybe one of the biggest manufacturers of Android, well, of smartphones, period, uh, is having its own entire separate ecosystem. They have their own chipsets in certain phones, they have their own OS, and now they have their own app ecosystem without any interlocking uh, path with the, what we use in the West, basically. So we're seeing a bigger and bigger rift between China and the West in terms of technology. It already existed in terms of privacy and software. There were limitations to what you could use in China that came from outside of China. And there were some limitations in the West uh, to use Chinese services. But generally, Chinese manufacturers tried to retain compatibility with what Western users were used to. It seems that this time is now over, so it's going to be interesting to see those two ecosystems evolve in parallel and diverge and branch out and maybe bring new things. It's going to be interesting, but it's also a bit worrying because it means there is basically no overlap between what China will use and what the West will use, which might create more problems than solutions in the end. And since we're talking about various services, it looks like Meta will follow in Google's footsteps and following the, EU, the EU's Digital Markets Act will now comply uh, with these sets of regulations by letting people in the EU unlink their Facebook, their Instagram and their Messenger accounts. Google already implemented that to let you not be tracked by all services at the same time. You will be still tracked by each individual service, but they won't be able to communicate and pull their data together to build a single profile. Meta is now following suit as well, so you can stop the sharing of information between the applications, and so Meta will no 
longer have such a giant profile on you. This also applies to various features of these applications. For example, you'll be able to have a messenger account without having a Facebook account. You will be able to use Facebook Marketplace without needing to use Facebook Messenger to communicate with buyers and sellers. You can now just use email. So it's good to see that these companies are complying reasonably with this new set of laws. I was expecting a lot more resistance, a lot more skirting around and implementing barriers, but it looks like they're complying smoothly with that. Now, of course, you will have to trust that they do not, in fact, aggregate all that data anymore, uh, because you don't know it's a black box in there, they could still do it. You have no real way of verifying that, and the best option, as always, remains not to use any of Meta's or Google services, but yeah, for some stuff, for example, for me, for YouTube, I just cannot ditch Google yet. I ditch them for everything else. I don't use Meta services apart from Messenger because my friends just don't want to use anything else. But yeah, for Google, the only thing I use still is uh, YouTube. And if you can de-Google or de-Meta your life, you should probably do it because these are really nightmare dystopian companies. Now this week we also got the release of Bazite 2.2 and it's an interesting distribution meant for Linux gamers. It's basically a rebuild of Fedora but it's using Universal Blue or UBlue. And these are a set of container images meant for Linux desktops, not for servers. And they have various images that contain various additions to the base Fedora system. For example, there's an image with Nvidia drivers included. So this new version of Bazite includes a new modified Linux kernel for better hardware support and better performance. It also supports HDR, it supports Nintendo controllers, and it adds a bunch of applications, for example, a web app manager, maybe for your cloud gaming services. It has pods to manage containers for installing other distros if the image-based system doesn't fit your entire needs. It has better Steam Deck support than the regular Fedora. It has patches to GameScope, which is the window manager it uses to run games, and there's obviously a choice between GNOME or KDE uh, for multiple users. It's really aimed at people who want to game on Linux, it's not necessarily meant for a normal desktop experience, although it does provide that as well. It has a full package manager compared to SteamOS or Holo ISO that doesn't really have a fully functioning package manager by default, the repos aren't set correctly, and it just isn't updated all that often, and it does let you do anything that you would do on a day-to-day -day system, but it is more geared towards gamer, whether it's on a regular desktop or on a handheld, on a Steam Deck, whatever else. Personally, I would prefer using a dedicated system that is just for gaming, like Holo ISO, on a device that is just for gaming, but if your computer is mainly for gaming, but you also use it for regular desktop tasks, maybe Bazite might be interesting. Uh, I will have to use it on the YouTube channel and maybe compare it with Nobara or Holo ISO or other gaming-focused distros, just to see if it brings something cool, if it's fully usable, and what the limitations are. So let me know in the comments on this podcast. You can leave comments, by the way, on a podcast.thelinuxexp.com. Uh, let me know in one of the these comments uh, if you're interested in that. Now, if you use NVIDIA on Linux, you can look forward to even better drivers. There's a new beta for the proprietary NVIDIA drivers. It's version 5.50 up from version 5.45 that we currently have, and it fixes a bunch of issues for Wayland support, specifically for older GPU architectures. This has been a big problem with NVIDIA, 
On X11, your old GPUs tend to work well, but on Wayland they were really badly supported, and so it's good to see them going back now that the recent RTX series are very well supported under Wayland. They haven't forgotten about their old GPUs, they're going back and they're adding support for Wayland to them, or at least improving that support, which is really cool to see. They also have a fix to improve KWIN performance on hybrid GPU systems, so if you have a dedicated NVIDIA GPU and an integrated Intel GPU for example, and if you're using KDE you will get better performance there. It also adds support for more color spaces and more formats, and it fixes some issues with their open source kernel modules, which probably no one uses because they're not good, uh, but they have now rated them as beta quality, so there weren't just one single open source code drop that they update, they do want to fix some problems with those, so it's important I think, if only because it lets other people develop better open source drivers uh, using these as a base. There are also fixes for variable refresh rate displays, and interestingly some game-specific fixes for Horizon Zero Dawn, Metro Exodus, Halo Infinite, or Forza Horizon 5. And I think this is important, because on Windows, when you have a new release of the NVIDIA game-ready drivers, or, or the AMD Adrenaline something, or Catalyst, I don't know how they call it anyway, uh, but on Windows, when you see those updates to the drivers, you generally have updates to specific games, like, oh, this game released not too long ago, and we fixed a performance problem because they implement something weirdly in, in specific gaming APIs, and so we need to fix that at the driver level uh, to get better performance. But on Linux, we generally did not get that, and so I think that if we're seeing NVIDIA now starting to implement more game-specific fixes, it means that their drivers are in a solid enough state that they can now spend time not implementing or fixing general problems, but also focusing on specific games. And it also does mean that NVIDIA is interested in the Linux gaming market, which is not a given because this is a small market. So if they have game-specific fixes for Linux, it's pretty cool. So yeah, very happy to see this. Obviously, I'm more excited to see how the open-source NVIDIA stack will be maturing with Nuvo and the NVK Vulkan driver, but if those drivers are good but the proprietary drivers keep competing and getting better for people who have to stick with the proprietary drivers, for example if you need CUDA, uh, it's still going to be a good thing. So, great to see those improvements and I will be looking out for the stable release of these drivers, and I'll be using them on my own computer, because I do have uh, an RTX 3060, or 404060. And let's finish this episode with some good old gaming news. So first, uh, some bad news. It looks like Aya Neo decided against using Holo ISO as the default for their new handheld. Uh, they had previously announced that the Aya Neo Next Lite would run SteamOS. Then they clarified that it wouldn't be the official SteamOS, it would be Holo ISO, which is an unofficial repack of SteamOS. Uh, but now they're saying that the device will ship with Windows 11 out of the box instead. You will get the option to get it with Holo ISO apparently, but by default it will be Windows 11. They apparently received some feedback from customers that would prefer using Windows on their handhelds for some obscure reason. Now this obviously is a disappointment. I was Super happy to see Linux-based operating systems be distributed on more devices, even though it wasn't officially from Valve and an official partnership with SteamOS. It was still cool to see manufacturers bringing a Linux-based operating system for gaming. But yeah, it's not to be just yet. 
Personally, I will never understand why people will prioritize playing three or four unsupported games and using a terrible system for handhelds because Windows doesn't have an optimized interface for gaming, it uses way more resources than any Linux-based operating system on a handheld, it doesn't have good controller support, you're just getting compatibility for three or four games that will not run well on the handheld anyway, and you're trading off a lot of advantages. So I will never understand why people do it, but I guess if the majority of the customers for Ionio want that, well, I guess they have to provide it. So yeah, missed opportunity here. I hope we'll still see uh, Linux-based operating systems reach more devices in the future. I would expect that will happen when Valve finally decides to open up SteamOS completely and release ISOs that can be installed on any other device, but it's not yet the case. Still, we do have some good news, because modifications to the Linux kernel have been proposed to make running Windows games and apps much faster when you're using Wine or Proton. Uh, this is a set of patches that consist in a new driver called NT-Sync, and this driver would expose a new virtual device in slash dev to implement some of the Windows synchronization APIs. These already exist with Wine and Proton, but they do run as a normal process, which means it can become a bottleneck that slows down how Windows programs are executed on Linux. Now with a dedicated driver in the kernel itself, the issue would be lifted, which would result in much better performance when gaming on Linux using Proton. Uh, the performance reports indicates plus 21% in Metro 2033, or plus 678% in Dirt 3. It looks like it helps a lot of games to at least double their performance on Linux. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about FPS, because the Foronix article doesn't give the measuring units that they used, so it might just be that these specific synchronization calls are much faster. It doesn't mean that you'll get 20% more FPS in Metro or 678% more FPS in Dirt 3. It's probably just these calls that are way faster. But it also means that games will no longer be that CPU bound or bottlenecked, which is a good thing in general. So this proposed change is a set of 32 patches, and obviously we will have to wait and see if they are accepted in the Linux kernel. I hope they will, it would mean that in a bunch of cases, probably the game would run faster on Linux than on Windows, even through Wine, and that would be a strong selling point. It would kind of result in a world where people would complain on forums about the performance of a game on Windows, and other people would come in and say, run it on Linux, you'll gain 20% FPS. Would be really, really fun. Uh, but yeah, we'll have to wait and see if the patch set is accepted. Wine will also have to implement support for this, which is not necessarily a given because Wine is designed to run on non-Linux-based systems, and so this would be a Linux-specific change, so they would have to have support for this and for the old method as well. So we'll have to see how it goes, but I do hope that it lands in, uh, in the Linux kernel because it would make gaming a much better proposition on Linux for a lot of people. And still on the topic of Wine and Proton, there's an interesting new project. It's called Unified Linux Wine Gaming Launcher, or ULWGL, or ULWGL, and it is not another launcher application. It is a runtime. It is meant to be used by the various launchers that we have, like the Heroic Games Launcher, Lutris, and other things like that. And it's meant to unify how games can access Proton. 
It's developed by the very prolific Glorious Eggroll, he's the maker of Nobara, of G Proton, and other Linux gaming uh, focused stuff. And basically what it is, is a re-implementation of the Steam Linux runtime, which will let most launchers use Proton outside of Steam, something that has been problematic in the past, because while Wine is compatible with virtually anything, Proton depends on a bunch of things that are only available from Steam, and so running a game with just Proton was generally not super easy and very buggy. So having this new implementation would mean that, for example, Lutris, or the Hurry Games launcher would no, no longer have to ship their own various weird wine re-implementations like Wine TK, Wine Lutris, or whatever. They could just ship the ULWGL and use the regular Proton versions that you have installed through Steam, and games would run in the exact same way whatever the launcher you use. So you wouldn't have to use Lutris for this game and Heroic for that one, you could just pick the launcher that you prefer that supports all your games and run any game in the same way with the same compatibility, and that would be very, very good. It will also allow uh, people to unify the various wine tricks and tweaks that you have to apply or command line arguments, uh, which means that it would remove a lot of the elbow grease and manual work that is needed to run certain games that aren't available on Steam. And for privateers, it would also probably let them run their, their hard-earned games uh, that definitely do not contain cracks or a bunch of Trojans uh, in an easier manner as well. But I won't discuss that here because I do not condone these kind of practices and I don't do that myself anymore. I haven't done that for a long while. I don't think it's respectful for the developers, but I think it's also a use case that some people will jump on as well. So it would be very cool to have this uh, new ULWGL thing be the de facto implementation of how you game on Linux outside of Steam. It would unify things a lot, and I think it's a great project. So congrats uh, to Glorious Eggroll for yet another major Linux gaming project. The guy is just awesome. Okay, so this will conclude this episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. If you did, don't hesitate to leave a review on whatever podcast platform you download it from, because that obviously helps make that podcast more popular and reach more people. If you want to dive deeper into any of these topics, all the links I used are in the show notes. If you want to support the show and gain access to the daily uh, Linux news show as well, you can support me by using any of the links in the show notes as well. So thanks for listening, thanks for supporting if you do, and I guess you will hear me in the next one next week.